0: All right, if you would turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible or you forgot one today, there should be one somewhere in a seat back in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, you can take that home with you. That is our gift to you this morning. Mark chapter 5. Um, and just real quick, I just want to continue to ask uh, for you guys to be praying for Pastor and Christina and Micah. Obviously, they're not here today. They're in D.C. at the hospital, um, so Pastor and Christina, if you're watching right now, uh, John 16, Jesus says that the Father himself loves you. Um, and So we love you, we care for you, we want you to know that, we're praying for you. Continue to pray for them. Mark chapter 5, I want to take a familiar account in the book of Mark and basically just magnify Jesus in it. Uh, Because we love Jesus, right? I hope that's why you're here, because you love Christ, right? And he's shaped your life. And then we want to draw application from it for our lives, okay? So the main point for today's sermon is that we are saved by God to be sent by God, okay? We are saved by God to be sent by God. That is going to be the main point ringing in our ears as we read this passage this morning. Let me pray as we start. Father, you are great and glorious. We know that through all of our life, through anything that we do, it is not us that does it, but you through us. Help us to be humble and to be reminded of that. Help us to be reminded of the great salvation that you give to us through your Son, and help us to be reminded that we have purpose in this life because of that salvation. Um, So make it clear, make it known to us this morning. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we want to amplify the greatness and awesomeness of Christ and take with us a, I think what's going to be a life-shaping concept, uh, that we have been saved by God to be sent by God, okay? So we as followers of Christ have a major purpose while we are here on this earth. And that's great, right? Because I think we long to be a part of something that's bigger than ourselves, right? We want to be a part of a team or, or a group of people that are doing something that's bigger than just what you could do on your own. So we have that longing in our hearts, and as Christians, that longing is met in what God sends us to do, okay? He saves us to send us. We want to live that meaningful, purpose-filled life. Um, and we find that in Christ. So, Mark 5, uh, we're just jumping right in the middle of this gospel here, um, the middle of the ministry of Jesus, just to give you some context, some notable things that have happened so far. Jesus has healed a paralytic, right? He was brought down through the roof. Um, if you are reading through the Bible plan, you maybe read that this morning, I guess. maybe No, I'm behind, so you might have read that sometime. Um, but I read that this morning, right? That Jesus drops, or the, the friends drop this guy through the roof, this paralytic to Jesus. Uh, he has healed um, a leper. He cleansed the leper uh, actually two times so far in this book of Mark. Uh, he heals a man with a withered hand in the synagogue, and the Pharisees are getting all mad. There's all these different teachings, and then what what happens right before this chapter is Jesus calms the storm, right? So he has this the disciples are on this boat and Jesus is asleep in the back and there's waves and there's winds and it's terrible and they're afraid and Jesus speaks into it and calms the storm, right? He says, Peace be still. So So the previous verses are gonna detail that account and it leaves the reader and the disciples begging the question, and you can see this in chapter four at the very end, verse forty one. Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So that's the question that we have as we jump into Mark chapter 5. Who is this guy that even the winds and the waves would obey him? And so here's what happens. And this is probably going to be very familiar to a lot of you, but let's, let's come at it with fresh eyes. Verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. with stones. Okay, so here's the scene. Jesus and his disciples get off the boat, off the sea that he just calmed, right? Um, and, And off somewhere in the distance is a man who is possessed by demons, and he lives in the tombs. He was an outcast of the city Uh, People would try to go and bind him, to shackle him, to chain him up. But because of this possession, he was strong and he wrenched them out, right? He got out of these shackles. He was being tormented day and night. Um, They tried their hardest to get rid of him, yet there he was, living amongst the tombs. He would cry out and cut himself with stones, hurting himself externally to try to rid himself of the demons destroying him internally, right? And so we see him trying to get rid of this. This is a terribly sad situation as you read it. Um, and honestly, as we read it and like kind of cringe at it and kind of paint this guy to be the enemy, I almost have a heartache for his situation, right? He's in a terrible situation being possessed by demons. So let's keep reading. Verse 6. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me? Jesus, Son of the Most High God, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. So this crazy demon-possessed man sees Jesus in the distance as he gets off the boat, and he just starts booking it to him, right? And, and you can imagine that's, that's kind of a scary scene. This guy is crazy, out of his mind, and he's running towards Jesus as soon as he gets out of the boat. And I think this piece of information should already tell you something about who Jesus is and the relationship between what is holy and what is unholy, right? So you have what is unholy, the demons possessing this man, and you have utter holiness in the face of Christ, and the demon-possessed man is sprinting at Jesus here. And not only does he run over to him, but he falls down before him, and he says, what do you have to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? God the demons in this man are compelled in their unholiness to run to, fall down before, and shudder at what is most holy, right? So what we see here is evil is bending the knee to the king already. James 2.19 says, God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So here's an example of that, right? They're falling down before Christ. And I think what is interesting is what I just told you before. In chapter 4, you see this question of the disciples. Closest people to Jesus on earth, right? They say, who is this guy that even the wind and waves obey him? They say that just a few verses earlier. But the demon-possessed man, upon meeting Jesus for the first time, before Jesus can even speak a word, says, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? He knows exactly who he is, right? The demons believe they know who God is, And they're falling down before him, shuddering. So, the demons speaking up out of this man, swearing by the same God who stands before them, they are asking, please do not torment me. Please do not torment. They're begging Jesus to not torment him. And this is kind of a right thing to ask and plead, because this is what Jesus has come to the earth to do. 1 John 3, 8, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil, right? And so if he's destroying the works of the devil, then he most certainly is destroying the demons who work for the devil, in a sense, right? Okay? And so this is kind of a worthy thing to ask from the demons. Please don't torment us. Please, please don't rid um, us of this man, right? They're They're kind of anxious about what's going to happen because they know ultimately this is going to happen uh, in the end. And so as Jesus is calling for this demon to come out, he pauses and and let's read what happens here. Verse 9, Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission. Interesting, he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs in the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea, and they drowned into the sea. Very, very odd section of Scripture here, right? So Jesus asked the demon, what is your name? And now there's a lot of debate on why Jesus would ask that, um, okay? Because Jesus is God, therefore he is omniscient. He knows everything. So it's not necessarily so that he would know uh, what his name is, right? He, he knows what's going on here, um, What he does a lot of the time and throughout his ministry is he does these types of things that we would question, like, why is he asking that? But it's actually for the sake of others, right? And we see that quite often. I mean, Jesus' whole life is centered on others. And so, why did he ask his name? I'm not 100% sure. Like I said, there's a lot of debate. But one theory that was really helpful as I studied this passage was that he wanted to reveal to the demon possessed man and to everyone around the disciples how bad this situation was. The state of this situation, right? The gravity and the weight of the condition they were currently dealing with, how bad it is. Because remember, behind this demon-possessed man is still a person made in God's image, right? And, and I, like I said, we can read this passage and we can often forget, uh, we can paint this guy as an enemy and think that, there's not, that it's just the demons here, but there is this man behind him. And so he's revealing to the man and to the disciples how bad this situation is. This is terrible because the answer from this is that we are a legion of demons, right? Legion, for we are many. So there's not just one demon possessing this man. There is multiple. And now, in terms of uh, when you're talking about Roman soldiers, a legion is considered to be about 6,000, right? Um, And that's just to kind of give us an idea that there's a lot in here. I would say there was probably more like 2,000 because that's how many pigs ran into the sea, right? I don't know how many were in there. But obviously, legion here is to refer to us that there are many demons inside this man. And so this kind of gives me, as I read this, a little more sympathy for what's going on here for this guy, right? Uh, This guy that lives among the tombs. So they say, don't send us out of the country. Put us into the pigs over there. And Jesus sends them into the pigs, 2,000 of them, and they rush down into the sea and are drowned. And I can just imagine the disciples just thinking, what in the world has the past 24 hours held for us? Like, what is going on, right? Right? The sea was crazy acting up. We were thinking that we were going to die, and yet Jesus calms that with a couple words. And then right as we get off the boat, this is happening. Now the pigs are drowning in the water. Like It's just an odd past 24 hours that these guys have experienced. And as we read this, or at least as I read this, I'm thinking, what, is, what in the world is going on here? Some of us, the American in us, is thinking, that's a giant waste of bacon right there, right? <laughs> 2,000 pigs, are you sure? Let's keep a couple for, for some breakfast here. But there is a point to it, right? Um, I, have, I have read this passage many a time and just thought, I really just don't know what's going on here. And it wasn't until recently I was studying the Bible with one of our students in the youth group. Um, and he had brought up this great point. Praise God for our youth. Just as a side note. If you're an older saint in here, invest in the youth. You guys are leaving soon. Dying, right? There's no secret in that, right? Invest in the youth. These are the Christians of the next generation, right? Yeah, that was helpful, right? It's kind of a fearful motivation. (laughs) But anyway, I was studying this passage with him, okay? And he brings out this application from it. This gospel application. And it was very helpful. He said... That in order for this guy to be saved, it almost seemed as if a sacrifice needed to take place. Okay? And so I'm thinking, I'm like, dude, I thought I was the youth pastor. What's going on here, right? He was teaching me in this moment, which is just awesome to, to be a part of. He says that in order for this guy to be saved, it almost just seems like there has to be a sacrifice that takes place. So the first point for today is that saving requires a sacrifice. Here is a man in great need of saving. He is being tormented by a legion of demons, and his present situation is now known to himself and to those around him, right? He is aware that this is a bad situation. Without God, he is in a seemingly impossible situation. He cannot take matters into his own hands. He's tried that, and it only leaves him with hurt and pain, right? Right? So to say he is desperate would be much of an understatement. So what Jesus does in order to rid him of these demons is he casts them out of him into the pigs at a great expense, right? Two hundred or two thousand pigs. And in this, I don't think it's very hard to see that this saving ultimately here is symbolizing a greater saving where God saves us at the great cost of his son's precious blood, right? at the cross. We are saved from our sin because of a sacrifice. Hebrews nine twenty two. Whoever makes a practice... Oh, nope, that's not the one. There we go. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. See, Jesus, when he sheds his blood on the cross, is the sacrifice that secures our salvation. Okay? Our salvation, we don't get saved unless there is a sacrifice. We don't get forgiven of our sin unless there's a shedding of blood. So the legion was was many and required much of a sacrifice in order for them to be exterminated, just as our sin is great and requires much of a sacrifice in order to be exterminated. Jesus Christ, Son of the Most High God. So what we see here, just you know, secondarily to what's happening, is a picture of the gospel that Christ is painting. And you can't help but think that in his mind, as this happens, he's thinking, that's a pretty big sacrifice, but there will be a greater one. It will be my blood, just a few chapters later, right? And so that's what we see here, is that in order for this man to be rid of his biggest problem at the moment right there, these demons, there had to be Sacrifice. So here lies the first part of the title of today's sermon. God saves us, but he doesn't just save us for no apparent reason. There are greater purposes behind our salvation. There are great and weighty purposes for the Christian life. If you are here today and you have been saved by God through faith in what his son has done, then there is much purpose for your life. You do not live a meaningless life. And never can you say that as a Christian. So, the second point is salvation evokes a desire to be with your Savior. So we have this great and awesome miracle that takes place that Jesus does, right? And here's what happens next. Verse 14. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. Of course, like, I'm saying that if I see this happen, right? And people came to see what is, or what, it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed, and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus, to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with the demons begged him that he might be with him. So the herdsmen tell the people of the town, they come running, and, and these people from the town, they pop up on a scene that is more unbelievable than the 2,000 pigs running into the, into the ocean and drowning. What they see and what they're afraid of is that this man is now in his right mind, right? He's clothed, just to mention, it doesn't say it in Mark, but in Luke, this guy was naked the whole time, which kind of adds some, some weight to the situation, right? So he's clothed, he's in his right mind, and the people are scared of that. As they move their shocked gaze from the now changed man clothed in his right mind to the source of this miracle, Jesus, they beg him to leave. Depart from our region. Jesus, in an instant, casts out a legion of demons and saves this man from torment. What great power and what great compassion. This guy was the outcast, right? The one no one wanted to be around. The one whom they feared the one they left alone because no one was strong enough to bind him anymore. They see him in his right mind and they see Jesus who made it happen. They recognize his greatness, his awesomeness, his power, his might, and then they ask him or tell him or beg him to leave. So Jesus begins to get in the boat. And the changed man begged, I want to be with you. That's because salvation evokes in us a desire to be with Jesus, to be with him. We are saved by God, and that's going to create in us the want, and the never-filling want of wanting to be with Jesus. We will want him more, just as this man says, I want to go with you. So have you experienced Jesus? Have you recognized the depths he plunged in order to save you? Have you tasted of his goodness? Do you know who he is? If you have, then you will want more of him. I might need help back there with the next verse, John 6. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. This is an account that happens with Jesus after he gave them a pretty difficult teaching. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. They recognized who he was and they wanted to stay with him, to be with him. That's what salvation does for us. When we are saved from our awful sin and the penalty for it, then instinctually, we will want to run to the one who did it, right? And that's what this guy is recognizing here. Uh, A famous pastor, Matt Chandler, he says, no one has tasted filet mignon and goes back to saltine crackers, right? Think about that. No one has tasted the great taste of filet mignon. If you've missed out on that, I'm sorry. No one tastes that and then goes back to saltine crackers afterwards, as if they're better, right? In the same sense, This guy has tasted of Christ's goodness in this salvation, and he wants more of him. He's not going back to the tombs. He's not fleeing and saying, No, I miss cutting myself with stones all day and all night in those tombs. Right? I miss when my mind was possessed and I couldn't even get a thought in. He's not saying that. He's wanting to be with Jesus. His salvation gave him a desire for more of Christ, because he has tasted of his goodness. And the last point here, and where we'll spend the next 10 minutes here, being saved means you are being sent. So being saved means you are being sent. Let's read the last two verses, the the reply from Jesus here. Verse 19, or let me read verse 18 for context. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, "'Go home to your friends.'" And tell them how much the Lord has done for you, and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. This man wants to be with Christ, which is a worthy aspiration, right? And Jesus denies him of that. And so again, I'm coming to a confusing time in this text, like, how is that not the right thing? How is it not the right thing to, to jump in the boat and go with him, right? And so Jesus says, no, go home, tell your friends. So he's, he's pointing them in the opposite direction. And I can't help but think that Jesus is saying, we actually only have room in this boat for one demon-possessed man, right? And that's Judas, and he'll betray me a little bit later, right? We don't have room for another one. I know you're changed now. No, but seriously, this is kind of puzzling that Jesus would say this. And, and it kind of reminds me, actually, of a text that we see later on um, in the book of John, uh, where it says that it is better that Jesus goes and that the Holy Spirit would come, right? And so we often look at that and we're thinking, well, how does that make sense? John sixteen seven. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. And so that's kind of a hard thing to take in. Like, how is, how is Jesus being here with me not, like, how is that not better? And he's saying, it's to your advantage that I leave. Because if I don't go, the helper doesn't come. So it's kind of reminds me of that situation, right? Jesus is saying, the guy wants to be in the boat with him, wants to go with him. And he's saying, no, you go back home. And you're thinking like, how is that, how is that better, right? Um, And so it kind of reminded me of that. But what I'm also reminded of is that Jesus always has our best interest in view, okay? Think about that. In your life right now, Jesus has your best interest in view. That's comforting to hear, even if it means significant pain in our lives. Jesus has your best interest in view, and here's how I know that. Philippians 2, 4 through 6, it says, Paul's giving the example that you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And the grounding he gives for that is that, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So what is happening in this verse is, Paul says, look to the interests of others. And the reason you do that is because Jesus first looked to your interests by coming down in the form of a servant Not counting equality with God a thing to be grasped. And being obedient, as the text goes on, to the point of death on a cross. He has your best interest in view. And so the same goes for this situation. Jesus says, go home and tell your friends. Tell them of how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And I think wrapped up in that statement of Jesus saying that to this man is one of the main principles of Jesus' entire ministry. That's wrapped up in this encounter. Jesus is constantly saying, come to me, go to them. You can really boil it down to that, in a sense. Jesus is saying, come to me for salvation, and then go to them, those around you. Go to your home, go to your friends. Go to the corners of the earth and proclaim to them about me. Tell them what the Lord has done for you. And so the God who saves us is the same God who is going to send us. God who saves us from our biggest problem, which is not health concerns, which is not financial concerns, which is not anything else in our life but our sin. God who saves us from that, our greatest problem, is the same God who charges us with love to go, to send us, send us from him. So Jesus rescues this guy out of his affliction and then says, don't come with me, Go to them. They need to know. And as I was reading, one of the commentators I was reading, Bible scholar named William Hendrickson, he comments on the fact that the people beg Jesus to leave, right? This whole town is like, get out of here. You're, this, is too, this is too much for us. He says, Jesus in his great love cannot completely separate himself from them. So he sends them a missionary, In fact, the best kind of missionary, one who can speak from experience. So in a sense, we see a little piece of Jesus' heart being left with this city, which is kind of interesting to view it in that context, right? Jesus, in his great love, cannot completely separate himself from these people whom he loves, who he's going to go die for here in a couple of chapters. So he sends them a missionary. And this changed man obeys... And it actually says here that he goes into the Decapolis proclaiming what Jesus had done for him. And what we see here, the Decapolis, and I don't know if you're going to be able to see this very well. Here's a map. So basically anywhere you see a name, that's one of those ten cities, okay? The Decapolis is a region of ten cities. And so the, the small little piece of water uh, up by where most of them gather, that's where, about where they're at. We don't know exactly, but that's about where they're at. And so you can see he's traveling pretty far north and pretty far south to proclaim these things to the people, saying he's proclaiming this in the Decapolis. Um, so not, as, not only is he going home, but he's going to others as well, those that he doesn't even know. So he has been changed by God Almighty, and he has been sent by God Almighty to proclaim good news. And as we conclude here, I want, I want us to see this account in view of our own selves here. It kind of pictures us. We have been saved by God to be sent by God. And just to give, just as a side note, some of the problem that we have in America, especially with uh, the younger generation, um, my age, right? I'm younger, I think. Especially with us, is that we don't often give a rip about telling our friends about Jesus. We don't give a rip about telling our family about Jesus. But man, we'll go to Africa for two weeks. And, and share the gospel for two weeks there, right? Or we'll, we'll go to Brazil for three weeks and share the gospel there. We'll go to a third world country. We have no problem being adventurous and excited about that. But when it comes to our homes, we don't give a rip. But that was, that was over there. They needed a little bit more than we do. The older couple down the street that you think is so sweet and nice needs the gospel just as much as anybody else in the world. So it's almost like we are wanting adventure, but as soon as we get back to our friends and family, we start making excuses. Well, they, they probably know the gospel. They, they don't need Christ. So this man has had his life redeemed, and he has a strong desire to be with Christ. And Jesus says, go home and tell them. What would probably be more adventurous, what would probably be more exciting, would to be stepping in the boat and going with Jesus, Right? on this tour of miracles, on this tour of great teaching. What would be more exciting would be, to, be go, to go with him, right? Finish this tour around the Sea of Galilee. But he obeys Jesus and he goes and tells everyone he knows and they all marvel. And Jesus is sending us in the same way. Mark 16, 15. So at the end of this book, he says, and he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. The same God who powerfully saves this demon-possessed man is the same God who powerfully sends him to go share the gospel. God does that for us. He saves us to send us. And he has each and every one of us in our neighborhoods, in our families, at our workplaces, in our schools, to go tell people there what he has done for us. And when people come into contact with someone who's been changed by the gospel, their reaction will be to marvel. They will marvel at it. You can't hear the gospel and not marvel at it. Some will suppress it. Some won't want to hear it. But if they do, they will marvel at what God has done for us. And I think, Baker Heights, this is nothing new like This is nothing complex. In fact, this is mostly what I talk about when I get up here, right? But this is what we were saved to do. We have been saved to then be sent by God into our communities, into our groups, into our circles, to tell those people about Him, to live a life in which emulates or imitates Him. We cannot enjoy the benefits of salvation and neglect the beauty of the sending. We would love to just drink of the grace of salvation from our sin, but when it comes to to working and, and going and telling and sharing and proclaiming, it's too much, isn't it? We cannot drink the benefits of grace and neglect the beauty of the going, the sending, the proclaiming says, beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. They have beautiful feet because they go and they proclaim the gospel, right? We want to have beautiful feet. I was listening to a a pastor talk, and he was saying, feet are ugly, right? And that's the point of, that's the part of the body he brings out here, is that your feet are beautiful, right? And so what he's saying that what's wrapped up in that, is if your feet are beautiful, the gross, ugly feet that you have, and each one of you knows what your feet look like, right? If those are beautiful, then what God is saying is that you are beautiful in the way you live. That's beautiful. That pleases me. That glorifies me. Be beautiful, right? So here is just another motivator, and don't leave here after hearing this which is so easy and, and, I, and I have to confess, I fall into this. Don't leave here today and do nothing about this. Don't leave here this morning on the path to a pointless life. God sent His Son into the world to proclaim and apply this good news. The good news of salvation. And He's sending us in the same way to go Proclaim it. So do you want to live a purpose-filled, non-wasted life? Then go and proclaim, for we have been saved to be sent by God. Let's pray. Father, help us to apply this in our hearts and in our minds. God, we can do none of this without your miraculous working in our lives. Father, help us to be overjoyed at our salvation. Help us to be motivated by that salvation to be with you, to want you, to desire you. And Lord, let that desire produce in us an obedience to what you have called us to do. To our next door neighbor, who can be annoying sometimes, to our coworker, to those that we go to school with, to our friends, to our family, to all those around us in all the world. Let us go and proclaim what the Lord has done for us and how he has had mercy upon us. God, give us joy as we go. Give us beauty in our feet as we proclaim it and take it give us a boldness, give us the energy and the effort. Help us, God. We are a flawed people in need of a flawless God. It's in your son's name that we pray this. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing our last and final song.